0: This is crazy talk, really evil talk, as Jesus will go on to show. In the Gospel of John, in particular, the word sign is constantly used in reference to a miracle that had meaning. Jesus, you see, did not just do miracles for miracle's sake. They had meaning. They were signs They pointed to the truth of who he was as the Messiah. They fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. So they were not done in a vacuum. Jesus' miracles are always tethered to Scripture. You can't separate the miracles of Christ from the Scriptures. That's the key point we're going to see in our study this morning. The miracles of Christ had special Messianic value. Related to the kingdom showing he was indeed the promised messianic king. Now, this week, I had a really fast-talking guy call me on the phone. Sometimes they get in trouble on the phone, right? John McNutt here? Anyway, I, I thought he was a salesman. I do these crazy things. I got in trouble this week because I thought John was one of those crazy salesmen. You know, when somebody says uh, hello, and then there's a big pause, it's almost always a salesman. So I'm saying help me, (laughs) help me, and then I hung up, well here John is calling my wife, he's calling Kent Zimmerman, it's like, oh my goodness, sending out help, Uh, Listen to me, you got to be careful with this stuff, oh my goodness, I felt so terrible, I'm not sure I'm ever going to do that again. Terrible. But this guy called, and he was a fast talker, really fast. He'd make a great auctioneer. could hardly get a word in edgewise. He asked me if I'd be willing to go up to the hospital and pray for somebody. And uh, this person has COVID, and, and he launched into this. Uh, you know, you shouldn't be afraid if you're, if you're a man of God. You shouldn't be afraid. And I didn't even say anything. I didn't say I was afraid or not. He's, he's giving me this lecture. And as I started to get the name of the person, uh, He wanted me to pray for He told me that she couldn't use her arms and and so forth. And then he asked me if if I believed in healing. And so he really began to press me on my theology of healing. And I told him I did not think that the sign gifts were operative today, but, but that certainly God works through prayer. Well, he took issue with this. So I told him that in the Gospels, Jesus' miracles are called Signs. Because they pointed to him as being the messianic king who brings in the kingdom. And nobody else is the Messiah doing messianic signs to bring in the kingdom. It was like he didn't even hear me. He insisted with a little bit of vulgarity that such signs are still operative. So I challenged him. I said, well, when's the last time you saw somebody raised from the dead? I said, have you ever seen this? He says, yes, I have. I have no idea why, with that kind of a resume, he's calling me.
1: <laughs>
0: what are you calling me for? I mean, you, you need to be the one that goes to the hospital. I mean, you got that kind of resume. Get on up there, dude. I, I mean, I didn't say that. But at this point, he said to me, you don't believe in the Holy Ghost, and you're just dried up with no life. And as he was hanging up, he says, I got the wrong guy. Well, yes, indeed. If you're looking for someone to perform sign miracles and you're calling me, you for sure have the wrong guy. In fact, you're 2,000 years late. Sign miracles were unique to Christ and his apostles. And especially to Christ who gave authority to do them. But again, some of the scribes and the Pharisees followed up on the event of blaspheming against the Spirit... Which claim Jesus did miracles by the power of Satan by asking for yet another sign? So, in this thematic context, the sense of what they are saying seems to be this We claim you are doing miracles by the power of Satan, but if you're really doing them by the power of God, prove it by doing a spectacular God thing that even we can't deny. That's what they're saying. They were demanding a special, spectacular miracle that would be over-the-top, blow-your-mind evidence that the power of Jesus was really operating by the power of God. Thus, they were asking for a special kind of sign miracle, even more sensational than what Jesus had previously done, even though he was healing everybody in the land, all over the place, all the time, unprecedented. We want something a little bit more. Here is the thing with unbelief. It never has enough evidence because it doesn't really want to accept the truth. They are not really honest with the obvious truth. Now, some Christians today try to make the case for sign miracles, saying that unless they're performed, people won't come to believe. But they completely miss the point. God has given all the evidence needed. The issue is not a lack of evidence. The issue is hardened hearts that won't respond to ample evidence given. There is never enough evidence for willful unbelief. People sometimes say things like, if I could just see a real miracle, I would believe. But that's really contrary to what Jesus taught, contrary to what the scriptures teach. Remember this here in Luke chapter 16. I'm kind of picking it up midstream here. But Jesus is telling the story, and I think it's a true story, about those who had gone to the realm of the dead. Uh, You had this rich man who went to the torment section of Hades. And then you had Abraham. uh, And he's in the paradise section of the realm of the dead. And they're able to correspond, they're able to communicate, but they can't go from one side to the other side. And, of course, in the middle of this uh, conversation, we pick it up, verse 27. There's a point I want to make here. Uh, The man in hell, in torments, says, I beg you, therefore, Father, speaking of Abraham, considered the father of the Jewish nation, uh, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. He's concerned about his brothers. They're going to end up here with me if somebody doesn't go tell them. So send somebody from the dead. That'll be a convincing sign. Wow, how many many times do you have a dead person show up on your doorstep saying, I'd like to witness to you. You think that would make believers out of people. But notice what Abraham said to him. They have Moses and the prophets. That's the scriptures. Let them hear them. And he said, no, 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 Father Abraham. But if one goes to them from the dead... They will repent. But he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, the scriptures, neither will they be persuaded. though one rose from the dead. I wonder if we believe that. The most convincing thing is the scriptures themselves. More convincing that if somebody showed up from the dead, If you won't believe the Scriptures, you wouldn't believe it even if somebody came back from the dead to witness. There is the reality of the Spirit convicting people. There is the reality of the Word of God, which is living and powerful, working in people's hearts in a miraculous way, in a supernatural way. Back in the Old Testament... Jeremiah chapter 23 verse 29 Is not my word like a fire says the Lord and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces That's the power of the word In the New Testament Hebrews 4:12 The word of God is living and powerful sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the division of soul and spirit of the joints of marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart The word is able to do the most meticulous deepest work in the soul of a person possible Now, if the living God working through the living Word can't get through, then there is no hope. More signs would not be more effective. God's way is working through His Word. It's not a secondary thing. It's the essential thing. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Romans 10, 17. In 1 Corinthians, Paul said this, for since in the wisdom of God, the world, through wisdom, did not know God. It doesn't know God through wisdom. How does it know God? How can anybody know God? Through revelation. Through God's self-revelation. We don't figure Him out. The wisdom uh, the world, through wisdom, did not know God. So therefore, it pleased God, through the foolishness of the message preached, as, as the world considers it, to save those who believe. What's God's method? Through the message preached to save those who believe. The Jews request a sign. The Greeks seek after wisdom. What do we do? What's our mode of operation? We preach. And what do we preach? Christ crucified. You know, that message the world considers foolishness. We preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, to the the Greeks foolishness, foolishness. But to those who are called God's sovereign work to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. How do you get that through to people? You preach it. You preach the gospel. It's the power of God and the salvation for everyone who believes. What God has given in the word is sufficient. It's what we call the sufficiency of scripture. I don't know about you, but I'm sold out to the book. I live in the book. I love the book. I believe in the power of the book. I believe in the sufficiency of the book. The word is powerful. You know how I know that? It's fundamentally changed my life. So when I went home and shared with my mother what had happened, she said, this is like night and day. She knew me well. (laughs) This is like night and day. How'd that happen? happened through the word of God. What God has given is sufficient. This is how God works by the Holy Spirit. And what God has given is enough. So if I was to ask you, signs or Scripture? Where is the greater evidence? Signs or Scripture? It's kind of a trick question because even signs are to be understood through the prism of Scripture. All pointing to the truth of Christ and who He is. But my point here is it all rests on the bedrock of Scripture. It all goes back to Scripture. They were looking for an additional sign that would be astonishing, breathtaking, off the charts, clearly of God. And instead, instead, Jesus gave them a sign from... Scripture. How's that for a sign? We want a spectacular sign. I'm taking you back to Scripture. The signs in Jesus' ministry all tied to Scripture. They were all a fulfillment of Scripture. They weren't just done in a vacuum. I try to get this through to charismatic thinkers today. Miracles are not just done in a vacuum. When they're of God, they're not. Now the devil, he does his thing in a vacuum. But gods have purpose. Jesus' miracles had meaning and purpose specifically tied to who he is as the Messiah, as rooted in Scripture. I'm talking specifically about sign miracles. I believe God does miracles all the time. It's spiritual miracles. Anytime someone's born again, it's, it's it's a spiritual miracle. There's providential workings of God all over the place, all over the time. God's fingerprints are seen everywhere. I'm talking about sign miracles this morning. That's what I'm talking about. Specific sign miracles that point to something, that say something. By the way, in contrast to Jesus, who came operating in total harmony with Scripture. One day will come another Christ who is commonly known as the Antichrist. And how will he come? Well, Jesus told us how he comes, how he will come. In Matthew 5.43, Jesus says, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes... In his own name, him you will receive. You see, the Antichrist will come in a vacuum, not claiming any scriptural basis, not claiming any authority from God, no tie to anything, just championing himself to be God on the basis of his own claims. Yes, doing miracles empowered by Satan, but in a vacuum. No scriptural tie. Jesus did not do that. He came with Bible credentials, prophetic credentials, the Father's credentials. His whole ministry was interwoven and tethered to God's prophetic truth as found in the Scriptures. The really big thing is the Scripture. That's how you know the validity of anything. They said, we want another super sign. Just out of the blue, we want another super sign. Verse 39, but he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. This is a really powerful verse that I think has much application to where we are today in a context where charismania has a huge influence and sway over so much of professing Christendom. There are, certainly are many true believers in that context, but there is a huge, mega amounts of error. Sometimes, you see, seeking for a sign is downright sinful. When the evidence is already more than sufficient, as it was in the case of Christ, it is plain evil and sinful to, to demand more. When Scripture is complete and fully sufficient, it is sinful to demand more sign evidence. Henry Morris, Henry M. Morris, this rebuke from Christ seems applicable to those Christians today who are continually looking for miraculous manifestations of one kind or another. We already have the completed word of God with abundant testimony to to its inerrant authority. Frankly, all this clamoring for extra miraculous signs signifies unbelief and a lack of understanding concerning God, His ways, and His word. Anthony Wood, uh, Pastor Anthony Wood, uh, uh, him and Costi Hinn have written uh, some books. I highly recommend them all. They're good. I haven't even read them all, but I've read enough of them to know they're all good. Anyway, Anthony, Pastor Anthony Wood says, One of the most alarming trends in evangelicalism is the desire to experience God outside of Scripture via signs, wonders, and emotive mysticism. Boy, he nailed it there. This is a mega problem. This appetite for the miraculous that is sensational is really nothing new. John Calvin, who lived about 500 years ago, said this. Their requiring miracles of us is unreasonable. For we forge no new gospel, but retain the very same whose truth was confirmed, which is the idea of miracles. In Christ's ministry, the apostles, they they were affirmation, they were confirmation of the message being preached whose truth was confirmed by all the miracles ever wrought by Christ and the apostles. So he's right. Requiring additional sign miracles is unreasonable. We're not preaching any new message. Again, Anthony Wood says, it is well known that evangelical fundamentalist leaders of the 20th century diligently defended the Scripture from modernists aiming to cut out portions of the Bible. Now we live in a period of history where Scripture must be protected from mystics seeking to add upon the Bible. The battle for inerrancy is now the battle for sufficiency. Again, a profound, accurately, accurate statement. Now an especially egregious movement has arisen out of the charismatic movement. And error begets error and it seems to get worse as we go along in history. Uh, But out of the charismatic movement has arisen this new movement, relatively new, that's called the New Apostolic Reformation. And what do you think this movement is saying? Guess what? There's been a revival of the signs. And guess what? Apostles are back on the scenes. And guess what? These leaders happen to be the apostles. It goes back to C. Peter Wagner at Fuller Seminary, and our day is popularized by people such as Pastor Bill Johnson of Bethel Church in Redding, California, which boasts 10,000 people on a Sunday morning. Well, the first great issue with people like Johnson is that they do not have a high view of Scripture. There is so much error in his ministry, it's, it's staggering. But he does not have a high view of Scripture. And what ends up happening is that they say we need more than scripture. For example, here's a quote from Bill Johnson. We've gone as far as we can with our present understanding of scripture. It's time to let signs have their place. You hear what he's saying? Scripture will take you so far, but we need to go further. And the way we go further is, okay, let's open ourselves up to the signs. And if God is no longer performing, performing sign miracles, which I contend is the case, if you do see certain supernatural kind of signs, what must the source of them be? Well, to insist on the need for more signs and wonders today is to grossly misunderstand the purpose of, the, of sign miracles in relationship to the Messiah and his kingdom. And frankly, it's a, it's a denigration of a high view of Scripture which in effect says the Bible is not sufficient. It's not enough. Indeed, I think it is a legitimate application to say in this context that an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. It's frankly sinful. It's not kind of, well, we just kind of disagree, but we can all get along. Uh Uh-uh. This is serious. It's an attack on the Word of God itself. One that cannot be tolerated according to sound doctrine. The idea of evil is that which is morally bad or wicked. Adulterous speaks of unfaithfulness, unfaithfulness to God and his truth. In the Babylonian exile, you had the Jews essentially broken a formal outward idolatry, and yet here we find a problem of spiritual adultery in the hearts of these people. Their legalistic hypocrisy that steered their hearts away from God and His truth was really a form of spiritual adultery, as called out by Jesus here. The evil and adulterous generation in view was the Jews of Christ's time who, in spite of all the evidence that He was the Messiah, yet refused to believe in Him. They flagrantly sinned against the most brilliant light possible as seen in the person and ministry of Christ. Yes, they sought after a sign, but only only because they were wicked. They were not sincere truth seekers. They were wicked, not accepting the light that they were given. Consequently, no further sign would be given them. They were not in charge, but they were insisting that they be in charge. You know, anytime you come to the Lord kind of demanding, hey, we're going to kind of make ourselves judge and jury over you, watch out. You got it backwards. Who are they to demand a sign? Especially coming from a position of perverse and unfaithful wickedness. But Christ did indicate that there would be one more sign given them. Which as it turns out is the ultimate sign. Namely the sign of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. As illustrated in the prophet Jonah's experience as further indicated in verse 40. Verse 40. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. In effect, Christ says that Jonah was a prophetic sign. What happened to Jonah in the belly of the great fish was a type of death and burial, which was followed by a restoration to life. In other words, Jonah's experience illustrates the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The parallel is clear. Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. The son of man would be in the heart of the earth, meaning the grave, for three days and three nights. Now the Bible is clear that the whole of scripture revolves around a main theme, which is the person of Jesus Christ in God's plan of salvation, which is centered in him of which the focal point is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That's the centerpiece of all of redemptive history. After his resurrection, Christ appeared to uh, the two disciples on the Emmaus Road, and it says in Luke 24, 27, "...and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures." the things concerning himself. C.I. Schofield said, and I love this quote, it's one of my favorites, here the Lord Jesus Christ gave them the great key to the understanding of Scripture, that he himself is its subject and that in him the entire book finds its unity. But here is the thing about revelation. We only know God's plan as he reveals it to us. We never figure God out on our own. We just don't. That's what Paul said in in 1 Corinthians. We only know the significance of what God is doing as he unveils it. And revelation was progressive, meaning we understand more and more as more and more is revealed. And it all builds on the previous revelation. And the point is, revelation is now complete. Complete. It builds on through the Bible until we come to the book of Revelation, which ties the whole thing together, culminating in the eternal state. The book is complete. Christ said to the apostles, the Spirit will guide you, the apostles, into all the truth. Got the definite article there, a definite body of truth, New Testament truth. The book is complete. Now, at the time of Jonah's experience with the great fish, no one at that time said, oh, yeah, this is clearly a sign of the coming Messiah involving His death, burial, and resurrection. (laughs) No one saw that! But God did. However, looking back, we can see that this is what God had in mind all along. He sovereignly orchestrated it so that ultimately it would be a picture of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. But here is the point. We wouldn't know this apart from God's further revelation, would we? we say, that's an interesting experience that Jonah had there, but it doesn't really bear any significance on anything else. Well, it does because we know this because Christ has told us this. As such, Jesus became the fulfillment of the sign in Jonah that God intended all along. And it fits perfectly with the overall picture of what the Messiah would do. Back in Jonah, chapter 1, verse 17. Now the Lord prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. God's behind this whole thing. You say, well, it's it's unfortunate. You know, there's a large fish in the area. No, the Lord prepared this great fish. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. That'll give you some quiet time. That'll really give you some time to rethink, uh, you know, the direction of your life. Well, because of the sign as found in Jonah and the language of Jonah as quoted by Christ in Matthew 12, 40, some have insisted that Christ had to have been in the grave for three full days and three full nights in order for this to be accurately fulfilled. So various arguments have been put forth as to whether Christ was actually crucified on Wednesday, on Thursday, or as has traditionally been thought on Friday. Now, the problem with insisting on three full days and three full nights is that that then pushes the resurrection into the fourth day, right? Yeah. Three full days, three full nights, you're maxed out on that, you're pushed into the fourth. But the Bible is clear that Christ rose again on the third day after his crucifixion. That's a little bit of a dilemma, isn't it? Christ repeatedly said that he would be raised the third day, not the fourth. The most logical answer is that in Jewish reckoning, any part of a 24-hour day can stand for the whole. For example, here's a Jewish rabbi, Rabbi Eliezer, about A.D. 100, who wrote, a day and a night make an ona That is a 24-hour period. And the portion of an ona is reckoned as an ona." You see what he's saying? So the sense is that it was common for Jewish people to regard even part of a day as representing a full 24-hour day. And we see this a number of places in the Old Testament Scriptures, 1 Samuel, 2 Chronicles, Esther, etc., so in this way of thinking, he was buried on Friday afternoon, resurrected on Sunday morning. Part of Friday is regarded as one hour day, Saturday is one twenty-four 24-hour day, and part of Sunday is regarded as one twenty-four 24-hour day. Hence, in the Jewish way of reckoning, Jesus was in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights, and at the same time, he arose on the third day. This is most probably the proper way to understand this. A little footnote here, the old King James translated sea creature as whale, uh, which is inaccurate. Uh, The Greek word uh, ketos literally means great sea creature, which is translated here in my new King James as great fish. The number three is of great significance as found in Jonah and as repeatedly referred to by Christ. Note this. Uh, Matthew sixteen twenty one. from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, scribes, be killed, and be raised the third day. Matthew seventeen twenty three. and will kill him, and the third day he will be raised up. Matthew 20, 18 and 19, uh, going up to Jerusalem, verse 18, verse 19, deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and discourage and to crucify, and the third day he will rise again. And then after the resurrection, you know, as he's veiled his glorified appearance, but he's very much alive and he's talking to those two disciples on the Maus Road. They're talking to Jesus and they're saying, we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. And indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Not the fourth, but the third day. It all fits perfectly. Christ was indeed in the tomb parts of three different days. Jonah had a three-day experience in the belly of the fish. Christ repeatedly predicted he would rise again on the third day. The disciples testified that indeed he was reported to be alive on the third day. This did not happen on the second day or on the fourth day, but precisely on the third day, just as Jesus said it would happen in perfect accord with Jonah typology and the Jewish understanding of three days. Jonah was as good as dead, pictured as dead in the belly of the, of the great fish for three days. But he didn't stay in that position. Here's what happened. Jonah 2.10, so the Lord spoke to the fish. Again, God's behind this whole thing. And it vomited Jonah onto, onto dry land. Uh, you know, might not have been bad. You know, puke him right into the water so he can kind of clean up before he comes out. But anyway, uh, <laughs> vomited him onto dry land. And this is a picture of resurrection, the resurrection of Christ in, in type. Now, normally we would never envision this picturing the glorious truth of the resurrection, would we? Say right there, you read it to your children. Say, You see the, the puking motion? That's the resurrection. <laughs> we, we would never go there, would we? Again, we would never figure out God's pictures except that he tells us the meaning of them. And God's ways are not our ways. They're so much more profound than our ways. Again, this reality of three days in the tomb followed by the resurrection is the ultimate sign that verified all of Christ's claims. From there on out, God holds the world accountable for the truth of the resurrection. Acts chapter 17. Truly these times of ignorance, lots of ignorance, God overlooked his patience. But now, after the resurrection of Christ, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent. Why? Because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man, that's the God-man, Jesus, whom he has ordained. And he is, how do you know it's coming? How do you know? How do you know? Well, he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. The resurrection changed everything. God now holds all people everywhere accountable to the truth of it. He now commands all people to repent, that is, in faith to align their thinking with the truth of Jesus Christ as the risen Lord, who is the God-ordained judge of all. The proof of this is found in the resurrection, which happened in perfect fulfillment of prophecy as illustrated in Jonah and predicted by Christ. Now, in the experience of Jonah, we have pictured in really summary form the full gospel message, The word gospel means good news, and it's the message about Christ. And what Christ has done to save us from our sins. Paul spells it out, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4. He starts out in verse 1, I declare to you the gospel. He gets to it, verse 3, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried, and then he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And he goes on to say, so we preach and so you believed. The gospel is all about Jesus and what He did, and He did it all. That is why it is a gospel of grace. You see, Christ died for our sins. Christ was buried. Christ rose. You didn't do anything other than the sinning. He does all the saving. You do all the sinning. That's the only contribution you make. Or I. The only thing we do is believe, and even this is because of the work of God's grace in our hearts. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 For by grace, the cross... You know, we preach the gospel of God's grace, fundamentally grounded in the cross. For by grace, the cross, God's grace working our lives to bring us. By grace, you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. It's not by works of any kind, not by rituals, not by sacraments, not by baptism, not by acts of kindness, not by church membership. Sorry, Those of you who just joined, I won't get get you to heaven. Only by faith in Christ and his finished work on the cross are we saved. And then Jesus made this application, verse 41. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Why? Because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. Now, Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. And it was a massive empire. You see here, all of this is the Assyrian Empire. And here Nineveh is this capital city. And they were known for their their ruthless uh, treatment of people. I mean, the Assyrians like to cover, you know, bury people up to their neck and then watch them die over, you know, (laughs) however long it takes to die in that state without any water. They they like doing these kinds of things. So, I mean, we get on Jonah for not wanting to go, but you can understand, I really don't want to go to those terrorists. I I really think they should die. I mean, you can see kind of why he maybe thought the way he did. They were so brutal. But they did repent. The emphasis here is interesting. Even though Jonah is ultimately a sign of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, here Christ pivots and makes the issue that of Jonah's preaching and the Ninevites' response of repentance. There's two great issues all the way through the Scriptures. There's the issue of the person and work of Christ. And there's the issue of the response that God demands. It's not enough that Christ died for the sins of the world. You've got to respond if you're going to be saved. God demands a personal response. And he zeroes in here on the response now, we might expect the emphasis at this point to be on some sort of sign that Jonah performed. But that's not the case. As far as we know, Jonah did no sign whatsoever. Read the account. As far as we know, the Ninevites had no knowledge at all of Jonah's experience in, inside the fish. He didn't show up and say, you know what, you guys should believe me. I've been inside a fish for three days. How do I look? Look like you changed, you know, your hair looks a little Cloroxed, Whatever. But he didn't do that. He didn't do that. What Jonah did was preach. Yes, reluctantly. But he did preach. And the people repented. The most amazing revival in the history of the world. Preacher didn't want to be there. Didn't want to give the message. And the people responded. This is the point of emphasis here. Not a sign But preaching, but preaching. We read about it. Jonah chapter 3, 4, 5. Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God. They believed the message through the messenger, weak as he was. They believed God, proclaimed to fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them now i want you to note that in john rather jonah i want you to note that in jonah 3:5 it says that they believed god but here in matthew 12:41 jesus says they repented well let me ask you did they believe or did they repent yes yes Repentance and believing always go together in saving faith. You can't have one without the other. Repentance literally means to have a change of mind. And that element, whether explicitly stated or implicitly implied, is always a reality in true saving faith. But Jonah, reluctant as he was, as I say, preached and the people responded in repentance and faith. And then Jesus says, And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. Now, this is interesting because the word greater is neuter in gender and not masculine in the Greek. Indicating something rather than someone is in view here. There is something greater on the scene than was found in Jonah. The emphasis here is on preaching. So the sense would seem to be there is a greater preacher with an even greater message now on the scene than was found in the person of Jonah. Ed Glasscock says, good summary statement, the comparison was not between two people but between the two functions, the prophets and the Messiahs, between a messenger of salvation and the instrument of salvation. And Christ was a perfect preacher. Back in Isaiah... Messianic prophecy, there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and a fear of the Lord. This was seen in Christ's ministry. When Jesus went back to his hometown of Nazareth and opened up the scroll to Isaiah and began to read and explain that these things applied to him, The text in Luke 4.22 says the people, quote, marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. When Jesus got done teaching the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7.28 says the people were astonished at his teaching. It blew them away. In John 7.46, they reported back, no man ever spoke like this man. When Jesus says the men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with, with, it is in reference to the custom in Jewish courts requiring the witness to stand, when testifying in a case. In other words, the converted Ninevites will in the final judgment serve as witnesses against them. Now this really would have rankled the Jewish pride to think that these Gentiles in the Old Testament would in the end be witnesses against them. I mean, after all, they considered themselves to be the most favored people of God. So this had to be very humiliating. These Gentiles at Nineveh in the Old Testament responded to the preaching of Jonah. But in contrast, these Jews on the scene during Christ's ministry who had an even greater privilege of having even more light through an even greater preacher, as seen in the Messiah's ministry, failed to repent. Verse 42. The queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. Here Jesus refers to the queen of Sheba who came about 1,200 miles from the Arabian Peninsula in what is present-day Yemen to hear the wisdom of Solomon as we read about it in 1 Kings 10 and 2 Chronicles 9. And to the Jews, this place was considered to be the ends of the earth. And you can see why. I put a map up here. You know, here, here she is coming way from way down here all the way through Saudi Arabia all the way up here to uh, see Solomon. Now, in the context, there's an underlying foreshadowing of the mission to the Gentiles. Uh, Jonah went to the Gentiles. The queen from the south was a Gentile. And as seen earlier in this very chapter, verses 18 and 21, the Messiah would prophetically declare justice to the Gentiles. And his, in his name, the Gentiles will trust, it says. Israel was now rejecting their Messiah. But going forward, many Gentiles would be receptive. Israel had the privilege of signs, unique sign miracles and wonders, but many of the Gentiles would respond simply to the power of the gospel message being preached. Many of you, even here today, Jesus said the Queen of the South will also rise up as a witness in judgment against the Jews of Jesus' day because she responded to the wisdom of Solomon. And in contrast, they were not responding to the greater wisdom as found in the Messiah's ministry. Again, the word greater here is of the neuter gender, indicating something greater, namely a greater teaching presented by a greater teacher. Solomon was the wisest man that ever lived apart from Christ, but in Jesus we have perfect wisdom incarnate. Colossians 2.3 says that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of, the wisdom, of wisdom and knowledge. So here is the major point of the text that we have studied this morning. The Jews were all about miraculous signs. And signs have their place. But the really big thing before God is the place of His Word. And signs have relevance, but only in relation to the Word. Demanding more signs and paying no attention to the Word is evil. God works through His Word to bring people to faith. Even the whole sign working ministry of Christ was grounded in the truth of the word. The Jews looked for signs but failed to see that the great issue was the truth of Christ as taught by Him, as centered in Him, as fulfilled in Him according to the Scriptures. Did you catch it? When the Apostle Paul says, I declare to you the gospel. Yes, Christ died, but how did He die? According to the Scriptures, He was buried, He rose again. According to the Scriptures. It's all grounded in the Scriptures. Miracles were never just about miracles, my friends. They were all about pointing to the truth of Jesus and who He is. According to the Scriptures. The Jews miss this. They miss the message. And to miss the message is to miss everything. The emphasis here in context is on the primacy of preaching and teaching as illustrated by Christ in the ministry of Jonah and Solomon they did no miracles only preached the word and shared the wisdom of God this is what Jesus did yes he did miracles par excellent but just as convincing was his wisdom as seen in his preaching and teaching ministry which was also indicative of him being the Messiah. This is what the Jews failed to see. Everything Jesus was about was rooted in the fulfillment of the prophetic scriptures. True converts are brought forth by the power of the Spirit working through the power of the Word. This is God's method. People get all enthralled with signs, supposed signs and wonders. Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. He's very deceptive. That's why we have to tether everything to the Word. Sound doctrine is essential. True faith is ultimately connected to the Spirit's ministry, connects the Spirit's ministry to the hearts of people in conjunction with the living Word of God. Well, after his resurrection, Christ appeared, as I've already mentioned, to these two disciples on the Emmaus Road. And as he spoke to them, I want you to see the emphasis that he placed on the word of God. You know, Jesus didn't show up and say, wow, it's your lucky day, guys. You know, I am risen from the dead. And this is an amazing experience that will transform your lives. He didn't do that. In fact, he showed up initially in in a veiled form. They didn't recognize him. And he put the emphasis where he wanted to put it. And where did he put it? Well, he put the emphasis on the scriptures and his fulfillment of them. We read here in Luke 24, 25, and he said to them, all foolish ones, By that's an interesting way to start the conversation. He said, all foolish ones, what's their problem? Slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things to enter into his glory. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he gave them a Bible lesson. He expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Yes, signs have their place. But the central, all-important issue is the Word of God. Faith takes God at His Word concerning His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all about Him. Let me ask you, have you believed or are you still looking for a sign? All the proof, all the evidence we need is found in God's book, the Holy Bible. It all connects to Christ and shows Him to be the true Messiah, the Savior and Lord of all who will believe on Him. And when you see those connections put together by the Holy Spirit, there's nothing more powerful, nothing more convincing than that. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Let's stand and have our closing song.
1: We're going to do count your blessings.
0: I'm my blessing. We're not starting till noon for the dinner, so this is this is this is good. <laughs> Seven
1: eighty-six.
0: There we go.
1: As you want.